Hi folks, this is Mary Claire Erdemast. Welcome to Play for Keeps podcast. We are recording new plays as podcasts in Ashland, Oregon, as a part of the Ashland New Plays Festival. This episode is a recording of The Harder Courage by Leslie Slate, one of the premium plays recorded at playforkeeps.org. For the full collection of premium plays, please subscribe now at playforkeeps.org. In The Harder Courage by Leslie Slate, Sheriff Ben Holmes arrests and ultimately hangs Robert Day for first-degree murder in this drama based on actual events of 1891 to 1892. During eight months in jail, the talkative, emotional prisoner and the bashful, quiet sheriff develop an unlikely friendship and ultimately share secrets each has been carrying since the Civil War. Holmes helps Day find the courage to die and Day helps Holmes find the harder courage to take his life. The Harder Courage is a powerful telling that traces this information and finds the essence of what lies between the lines. The Harder Courage by Leslie Slate, featuring Michael Gabriel Goodfriend, Hugh Jonathan Topo, Eric Popic, and stage directions read by Nancy Rodriguez, presented in two parts. Please enjoy part one of The Harder Courage. Welcome to Play for Keeps, a presentation of Ashland New Plays Festival. This play is the property of the playwright who reserves all rights to its use. This recording is the property of Ashland New Plays Festival, Inc., which reserves all rights to its use. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. The Harder Courage a play in two acts by Leslie Slate. Synopsis. Sheriff Ben Holmes arrests and ultimately hangs Robert Day for first-degree murder in this drama based on actual events of 1891-92. During eight months in jail, the talkative, emotional prisoner and the bashful, quiet sheriff develop an unlikely friendship and ultimately share secrets each has been carrying since the Civil War. Holmes helps Day find the courage to die and Day helps Holmes find the harder courage to take his life. Characters Ben Holmes, mid-fifties, sheriff of Cowlitz County from 1884 to 1892. Born in New Brunswick, later lived in Wisconsin. Moved to Cowlitz County in 1876. Lager. Fought in the Union Army in the Civil War. Introvert. Married to Susan since 1870. Four children. Robert Day, mid-40s, prisoner, accused of murder, born in southwestern Virginia, moved to Cowlitz County in 1888, cattle rancher, fought for the Confederacy, extrovert, storyteller, bit of a smart aleck, married to Elizabeth, Lizzie, since 1871, five children. Judge Bloomfield, early 40s, born in Kentucky, strong Christian, Superior Court judge for the circuit compromising Cowlitz, Lewis, Pacific, Waukeakum, Clark, and Skamania counties. He judged the Oysterville Pacific County and Gallagher-Clark County cases referenced in this play. Setting. The courthouse in the nearby area in Cowlitz County, Washington. Time. From October 1891 through June 1892. Epilogue, 1895. Historical note. This play is based on true events involving real people. When known, actual words spoken by them and words written by them in the newspapers and documents have been used. The rest is imagination. We are not sitting at our ease in the parterre or private box and witnessing a theatrical battle. There is no artifice, no phantasmagoria, no painted scenery here. It is all real, sternly, terribly real. The reality itself is before us, and we must meet it with a sternness, a gravity equal to its own. It is real blood, not red paint, that flows, and real-life warm blood must still flow and flow in torrents. We must have not only the courage to be killed, but 
we must have for brave and generous souls the harder courage to kill. Orestes Brownson, The Republic of Suffering, 1862. The Harder Courage, Act 1, Scene 1. Setting, October 10th, 1891. Morning. In the forest about a mile from the home of Robert Day and the Lewis River near Woodland, Washington. Later, Ben's Thoughts, June 2nd, 1892. At rise, Sheriff Ben Holmes sits patiently holding a rifle. He's 54 years old, of Scottish-Canadian ancestry. An introspective private man, he regards his position as sheriff as a chance to serve others rather than seek glory. He's well regarded by the public, which elected him to two, four two-year terms. His reputation is that of a hard-working man, fair and kind, especially to children. He's been tracking a suspected murderer, Robert Day, who has been hiding in the woods all night. I wouldn't advise trying to run home. Nobody's there. Where'd they go? If you hurt my family, you son of a... They're safe. They're far away from the lynch mob. What lynch mob? Those loggers who hunted you last night came back this morning. They want to lynch me. Why? They say you killed one of them yesterday. I was defending myself. We'll discuss that later. My immediate job is to get you out of here safely. Come on. It's all right. I won't hurt you. I ain't no fool. Soon as I stand up, you'll shoot my head off. Maybe that's how they arrest people where you're from. We have different customs in Cowlitz County. I ain't coming out. There's a hot meal waiting back at my house. Shame to waste it. And that nice warm fire. And your wife and children. Robert Day enters cautiously, carrying a Winchester rifle. He's a thin, restless man. Born in southwestern Virginia, Robert has lived in the hills about 15 miles upriver of Woodland about three years. But he's still an outsider. He is an extrovert, a storyteller, a bit of a smart aleck, fiercely loyal to his family and quick to defend them against injustice. Set the gun down, please. Robert sets the gun on the ground. Ben picks it up, unloads it. I don't like nobody touching my gun. Why should I trust you? Because I'm the sheriff and a logger, so I know Cowlitz County better than anyone. Unless you want to run to the lynch mob, you have to trust me. Catch. Ben tosses a small bundle to Robert. It's food wrapped in a napkin. There's some cold biscuits and bacon to take the edge off. There's a pot of beans at the end of the ride. Robert eats hungrily. I want to see Lizzie and my children. They're waiting at my place with fire and food. How are you getting us out of here? My scouts tell me there's one lynch mob between here and Woodland and another just south of Kalama. The posse will act as a decoy while we cross the river into Clark County and take the Indian trails to Kalama. Come on. Horses are waiting. By the way, I'm Sheriff Ben Holmes. Robert Day. They shake hands. Ben escorts Robert, who exits. Ben remains. It's now June 2nd, 1892. He suddenly seems older and world-weary. In this and all segments where he shares his thoughts, he speaks directly to the audience, breaking the fourth wall. That was how I met Robert Day. October 10th, 1891, eight months ago. Can't swear it happened precisely like that. Memory is a tricky thing. Some things we can't remember right after they happen, then a couple of days later we remember everything clear as a bell. Other memories we lock up tight and try our best to forget. Now that Robert Day was under arrest, my job was to probe his memory and figure out why he killed Thomas Clinton Beebe, a logger who was only 24 years old. The night before I arrested Day, while he was hiding in the fog and darkness, the coroner held an inquest. The findings were this. Beeb had died from a bullet wound in the right side, piercing both lungs. The jury concluded it was a homicide and named Day as the killer. There was one eyewitness, Clint's young cousin, David. He said there had been a minor argument earlier between Beeb and Day's son, Dexter, and Day heard about it and came into the camp with his gun. Day followed Clint and David up the road and shot Clint. The boy ran 18 miles to Woodland with the news that Clint was dead. He said that the two men were talking when Day suddenly raised his rifle and shot Clint in cold blood. Then he pointed his gun at David and said, You want some of this too? He pulled the trigger, but the gun jammed, and David ran for his life. Of course, that's only one side of the story. I needed to hear what Day had to say. I knew that if the law determined this to be first-degree murder, and if Day were to be convicted, my job would be... My duty would be to hang him. End of scene.
Scene 2. Setting. October 10th, 1891. Evening. The Cowlitz County Sheriff's Office in downtown Kalama. At rise, Ben is questioning Robert, who is ill at ease. Ben takes notes. We have to do this now. I'm wore out. I know. It's been a long, long day, and you spent last night in the woods. One word. It's all they had to say. Joy night to the fire. My family be all right. They'll be fine. They'll stay at my place until after court Monday, and then Constable Chatterson will escort them home. I'm going to. That's up to Judge Bloomfield. Before we get started, what's your full name for the record? Robert Thompson Day. Age? 44. Where were you born? Near Jeffersonville, Virginia. It's in Tazewell County. Hair? Color? Black? Complexion dark? Eye color? Brown. Height? Five foot ten. Any scars, tattoos, other distinguishing marks? Sword mark over my heart. Made by the saber of a Yankee who never drew breath again. Want to see? Not necessary. That's the only mark? Yes. Any previous crimes or convictions on your record? None. Been in a couple fistfights like any man. Never went to jail for it. That takes care of the record. Now, what happened between you and Beeb yesterday? Same thing that happened to that Yankee. <laughs> this isn't a joke. Murder is serious. No, it ain't murder. Then tell me what you think happened. No more joking. They tried to grab my gun. Why? They was... Clint was saying he'd hurt me and my family if I told anyone. About what? He had no right to... No right. No right to what? One word would have settled it. One word. Here, drink some water. It's dark. What time is it? 7.30. Sun's been down for two hours. Marty. I'm dog-tired. Can't I just go to bed? A few more questions, and then we'll pick this up in the morning. Go ahead. Let's start over. The shooting took place at the fork in the road where one fork heads up to your place and the other follows the river. That's right. Tell me why you stopped there. We weren't done talking. What were you talking about? I asked them if... I asked them if they hit my boy. They said yes. Asked if they told him they'd hurt my family. Yes. Asked if they wanted to beat me. Yes. Did they say why? They said Dex shouldn't have sassed them. He was speaking up for our cows. Did what they say make you angry? I was peaceable, calm, but they weren't. They tried to take my gun. Nobody touches my Were gun. Were either of them armed? No. Seems strange, unarmed men grabbing another man's rifle. But they did. Did they fear you? No reason to. Did you threaten them? No, I told you I was peaceable. When they grabbed your rifle, how did you react? I hung on and then it... You fired the gun at Clint. I don't... I didn't fire at him. He died of a bullet wound through both lungs. I mean, I don't recollect shooting him. You were the only one there with a gun. All I remember is fighting for my life, and then suddenly I was about 25 yards away. I looked back, and there was a man lying in the road. And I knew nobody believed me, so I run and hid in the woods. Lord, help me, I ran. And that's your story? That's all I can remember. Please, Sheriff, I, I don't know why this calamity came on me. I, I can't even think anymore. Let me lie down. That's all the questions for now. Get some sleep. We'll pick this up later. End of scene. Scene three, setting. October 12th, 1891, Robert's jail cell. June 2nd, 1892, Ben's thoughts. At rise, Robert is writing letters. October 12th. Darling Lizzie, it made my heart do a jig to see you when the sheriff brought me into court this morning. It was all I could do not to jump over the bench and swing you around. I wish the judge would have let me go home, but I reckon he wants me to stay here a little while. I'm going to hire me a lawyer and take care of this business. Kiss the children for me, darling, and I'll be home directly. Love, Robert. I never saw anything like the rage in Cowlitz County that followed Beeb's murder. To read the papers, it was like I'd caught Jesse James. Here are some of the headlines. Cowardly murder. A deliberate killing. Murdered in cold blood. The devil and his agents have evidently opened their campaign. But Day seemed to think he'd go free, and that chilled me. October 12th. Dear Mama, Now you might be hearing some bad gossip about me, so I hope this letter gets there before you see the papers. It's all nothing. I got in a little scrape with a logger, and I have to stay in the jailhouse a spell, but I'll be out in no time. The whole thing happened when the logger threatened he'd hurt Lizzie and the children, and then he tried to take my gun. That's about... The most fool thing anyone would do, and of course he got himself killed. I'm in the right, don't you fret. I don't even think they'll charge me. 
Love to you and all the folks in Idaho. I knew Clint Beebe slightly. His father owned the Woodland Mill. Nice young man, only three years older than my daughter Annie. He had his flaws, of course, like all of us when we're young. But in death he became an angel in the public eye, while day sprouted horns and a tail. October 12th. Dear Dexter, Don't blame yourself for me being in the jailhouse, son. It ain't your fault. You protected our cattle and stood up for our family, and I'm proud of you for that. There's a lot of fools in this world, and some of them will tell you lies about me. Just don't even listen to them. Make sure Mama doesn't read the Kalama newspaper. That reporter told me that the devil has hold of me, and I know Mama would get riled up if she read anything like that. Old man Imus, he owns the Kalama Bulletin, nursed a special level of hatred for Day. Imus believes our little town is destined for greatness, but only if we purge all the bad seeds. To him, that includes Chinese, Indians, drinkers, and anyone who fought on the wrong side of the Civil War. His wife's the head of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. The old man was disappointed that he couldn't blame the murder on demon rum, but he was glad to hear Day didn't attend church. That was all the proof he needed of the devil's handiwork. Until I come home, son, which should be in a few days, I'm asking you to be the man of the house. I trust you. Take care of your mama and your little brothers and sister for me. Don't let Frisco eat all the sugar. I'll be home directly. Love, Pat. End of scene. Scene four. Setting. October 17th, 1891. Robert's jail cell. At rise, Robert is alone, writing a letter. October 17th, 1891. Darling Lizzie. Last night the sheriff did a wonderful thing. A lynch mob surrounded the courthouse, buzzing like hornets. The sheriff got wind they were coming and tucked me out of sight in an attic across the street where we could watch them. Then he went out and said a couple of words, and all the fire went out of them loggers. I never saw nothing like it. Makes me hopeful that this business will soon be ended, and I'll be coming home. I'm going to write down the whole story so you can read it to the children. It started when the sheriff took me out of the jail in the middle of the afternoon and sneaked me into Pony Bush's general store. End of scene. Scene 5. Setting. October 16th, 1891. An attic room in Tony Bush's store in downtown Kalama. A small, grimy window offers a limited view of the courthouse a block uphill. At rise, Ben peers out of the window. Robert is nearby, trying to see around Ben. What's going on out there? They come yet? Not a sign. We don't expect them to show till after sundown. Let's sit down. We have many hours before us, perhaps all night, so let's use the time to talk some more. I've interviewed your wife and your son, Dexter. You had no right. I have every right. I talked to Charlie and Olive Beebe, to all the loggers who were working on October 9th, and especially to David Beebe. I've read the transcript of the coroner's inquest. I've received a lot of tips from citizens on your past. Finally, I have your own brief statement after I arrested you last Saturday. You know I told you the truth. What I know is that your story and David Beebe's story don't match up. He's lying. Perhaps. Or different people are seeing the same events in different ways. What concerns me is that the public is using imagination to fill the gaps. Look at this. Ben hands Robert a copy of the Kalama Bulletin. The Kalama paper. I saw this. And I ain't the devil. Robert Day shot and killed TCB last Friday on the Lewis River above Woodland. In the afternoon, young Beeb had trouble with Day's son about some cows that destroyed Beeb's crops, so Beeb slapped young Day's face. He got it all wrong. It wasn't crops. It was hay bales. It wasn't a slap. It was a punch. This is what happens when people talk without having all the facts. A lot of people know the Beebs, and they're trying to understand why this happened. My granny used to say a lie runs around the world ten times barefooted while the truth is still lacing up his boots. And it's my job to find out who's barefoot and who's wearing the boots. My words wear boots. I'm an honest man. You need to quit listening to liars or quit reading the papers. I ain't no devil. Don't investigate crimes through the newspaper. If I could have any wish, I'd stop crimes before they happen. Which is why we're hiding out. There's a mass meeting underway south of here at Kearns to discuss whether to lynch you by people who read that story. I'm afraid they might come to the courthouse tonight. But we're right downhill from the courthouse. They could see us up here if they come. Sometimes the best place to hide is in plain sight. But this Ponybush's story, everyone knows he's a deputy. He's downstairs doing inventory as if it were an ordinary Friday night. We'll stay here in the attic till it's safe. 
overnight if necessary. What if they come back tomorrow or the next day? One day at a time. I thought the lynching talk was done with after you arrested me. I hoped it was, but people are fearful right now. Because of this story? Dad blamed fools believe anything. I believe in checking things out. I want the truth from you. The other day you said you were tired and couldn't remember everything. How's your memory now? It's been coming back. Then begin at the beginning. Start with when you came here and don't leave anything out. All right. We moved here in 88 from Idaho after Pap died. Couldn't find any steady work in Portland and my littlest was only two years old. Then somebody told me there was an abandoned logging shanty on public land and if we was living there... When it was surveyed, I'd have first right of purchase. I only had a dollar in my pocket. I jumped at the chance. We took a steamer 18 miles up the north fork of the Lewis, and there it was, drafty and mossy, but like a palace. First thing we did was plant a garden. Now we got a few cattle. And then the Beebs came a-logging, year ago, last spring. I didn't mind them at first. They hired me and Dexter on when they needed extra hands. Dexter was a whistle-punk, 16 years old, already doing man's work. I suppose they won't be hiring us anymore. Did you work for them on the day of the shooting? Dexter did. I didn't. We needed meat, so I went hunting. Come home for dinner around two. My little boy Frisco runs up and says, Pappy, Pappy, Dexter got hurt. Lizzie says, Hush now, I'll let Pappy eat. But I said, What happened? Is he hurt bad? Lizzie says, simmer down, darling. He's back at work. He just got into a little fuss. No harm's done. I said, tell me what you mean by a little fuss. And Frisco pipes up, the straw boss knocked him down. And that would be Clint Beebe. How well did you get along with Clint before that day? Never gave him cause to complain about my work. But we was just different. I'd ask a simple question. It was like petting a cat backwards. He could be a mean critter. Always saying we was squatters, no better than thieves, that his pappy and uncles fought for the Union, and I was just a dirty rebel loser who should have stayed in Virginia. He complained about my cattle, too, saying they was always wandering over the property line. Cattle don't care where lines are. One thing after another. That's why I started up them tall tales. Tall tales? What do you mean, you made up stories? I spin yarns for the fun of spinning. I was just having my own little joke on Clint. Did you tell a yarn about killing men and laughing while you did it? What? I never said that. Loggers at Beep Camp told me you did. Not quite like that. But did you say something similar, a joke, a tall tale? Well, can't help it if fools take me serious. Tell me exactly what you told them. Well, maybe I said, See this here scar over my heart made by the sword of a Yankee who never drew breath again. I grabbed it right out of his hand and swish, slashed off his right ear. Swish, slashed off his left ear. Swish, swish, slashed off his big old mustache for good measure. But he was still talking, so swish, I slashed off his fool head. Now, Sheriff... You can tell that's a yarn, can't you? How could any fool believe it's true? My wife always says there's a wee bit of truth in every lie. And the true part was me getting caught with a Yankee sword. I still got the scar, remember? When you told this tale, was it a warning? Who for? Clint Beebe. I had to to stop his mouth. He was always trying to get me riled. As long as we're discussing tall tales, let's clear up a few stories that people have brought to me. Were you a guerrilla in the Confederacy? no. 16th Virginia Cavalry Company, one. Wasn't there a guerrilla band attached to the Virginia Cavalry? You're thinking Mosby's Rangers, but I wasn't one of them. You ain't going to make me out to be a guerrilla or an outlaw. Did you shoot 30 men in the war for joy of seeing them fall? No, that's crazy talk. In the Seattle newspaper. Supposedly, you said it to a Portland man shortly after I arrested you. No. All I told him was that I weren't scared. Of you, I mean. I wasn't going to show fear. Did you murder two or three men after the war? No. Never murdered anybody. More crazy talk. What about your son? He supposedly told someone, wasn't the first time Pap had done the like, and a newspaper reported it. That's low, twisting the boy's words against his father. But did you say that? I was spinning yarns. My children like to be entertained. Did you spin a yarn that you killed a man? You don't understand. Try me. Back in Virginia after the war, a couple of so-called friends bushwhacked me in the woods. I fought them off and ran away. They fired at me, but must have hit each other. When I told my children about it, I stretched it. I made it look like I was tough instead of scared to death. A man wants his children to look up to him. Those men who fired at each other, did they die? One did, but I didn't kill him. I never killed anyone since the war. Ben hears something outside. Hush. This might be it. 
Ben looks out the window. Here they come. Go ahead and look, but be careful. Robert looks out the window. Look at them. Scuttling like cockroaches by the light of the full moon. See a lot of rifles and pistols. See that, the tall man on the left? Yep. A rope. You was right. They're waiting for everyone to arrive. Oh, my word, there's Bill. I thought he was my friend. He's also a friend of Beebs. Bill. And there's Olsen. Johansson caught... I can't believe it, my friends. Shh. Be careful. Sound carries farther after dark. Five, ten, fifteen, twenty? At least fifty men and more coming. Ugh, no, it can't be. Earl Stone. Who's that? The boy walking toward them right now. Son of a former sheriff. A fine young man. I hope he's... Oh, oh good. He's walking on. He isn't part of this. My friends ain't walking on. Shh. There's nothing we can do. Try to ignore them. Finish the story. What was that you were saying about Beeb and your cows? Oh. My cows was eating the Beeb's hay. I've told them time and time again not to throw hay where my cows can see it. Cattle don't care whose hay it is. It's food. They come a-running. And that's what started the whole calamity. You left off when Frisco said Dexter got hurt. I walked down to the logging camp and saw Dex. He had a bruise on his cheek. He said our cows went for the Beeb's hay and Clint started hitting them, knocked a horn off of one, and she goes a bawling. Dexter hollers, stop it, and Clint knocks him down. Then he says, your pa better not tell anyone about this or I'll knock him down too. I asked where Clint went. Dex said, there he goes now, up to Frank Merck's to rent oxen. I lit out after them wanting to talk, not to fight. I caught up, and we walked and talked a bit. I asked if they knocked Dex down, and Clint said, yes, I did, all prideful-like. I kept my voice peaceable, and I said, did you tell him you'd knock me down, too? And Clint said, yes, I did. He was using all kinds of rough talk, saying I had no legal right to live on my ranch, saying my cows was always in the way, saying he would hurt my wife and children, trying to get me riled. I said I didn't come here to fight. He called me a damn coward, part of my language, Seraph. And I said, I didn't like being talked to that way. I said I'd punch them if they didn't stop using rough words. I think that's what he wanted to hear. He said, lay down your gun. We'll settle this. I said, no. Told him, keep back. And then they pounced on me like a pair of panthers. Tried to take my gun. I fought him off and skedaddled. Then I looked back, seen a man on the ground. Did you go to the camp intending to shoot him? No, I went there to talk. The other day you said you never heard a gunshot. To come back to me. I heard it, but I don't remember firing the gun. When did you hear it? During the fight. Do you remember how it happened? No, I never raised my gun to my shoulder, but he lay there on the ground, bleeding. Was David Beebe still there when you looked back? He was running away. Did you point your gun at David at that time? I... I don't remember. Did you say anything to him? I don't remember. But you did shoot Clint. I must have. I had to defend myself or I'd have been killed. But I never raised my gun to my shoulder. All I remember is Clint pulling on my gun. I must have fired, but if I did, I didn't do it with murder in my heart. Murder in your heart? What do you mean by that? I mean, I didn't carry hate in my heart. I didn't intend to kill him. That's what murder is. But I was defending myself. Why would an unarmed man try to take a gun away from an armed man? Lord only knows. Shouts outside. Ben and Robert look out. At least 60 men out there now. Arrest them. They haven't broken any laws. They're all over the porch. They're free to assemble peacefully. Peacefully? They've got a... Shh. They've got a rope. That ain't peaceable. If they don't find you, they won't use it. If I had a gun, I'd... Hush. I'd advise you not to threaten harm to anyone in front of me. Sit down. Robert sits. Before this year, there hadn't been a lynching in Washington in nine years. This year, there have been almost 200 lynchings in America, more than any time in history. Two men were lynched west of here in Pacific County in April. They'd been convicted of murder, but won their appeal. They were in the Oysterville jail, supposed to be escape-proof, waiting to be sent to Chehalis for retrial. They never got a chance. Forty masked men came in in the dead of night, overpowered the guard, and shot the prisoners through the bars. Nobody saw their faces. Sheriff Turner is a broken man. Two weeks later, there was a lynching in Walla Walla. More than 100 soldiers broke into the state penitentiary, pulled a prisoner into the street, and gunned him down. He shot one of their fellow soldiers during a card game. Lynching is frontier justice. It will not happen in Cowlitz County as long as I'm sheriff. How can you stop it? Mobs don't listen to sense. We're taking steps to make our jail more secure. What good will that do? You just told me an escape-proof jail and even the state prison couldn't stop a lynch mob. There aren't a hundred soldiers here. No, just a hundred loggers. 
You're all good people. Good people don't kill. They stare at each other in silence. Louder shouting outside. Ben and Robert look out the window. You're clearly not happy the courthouse is locked. Lord have mercy, like a swarm of hornets. Stay calm. Remember, they don't know we're here. What do you think they'll do? Try every door and window. They're all locked. I wish the windows were barred. What if they break in? No one's inside. What if they go crazy and bust everything? Let's hope cooler heads prevail. And what if they go to my place? Oh, Lordy, what if... Shh! I placed a man on guard at your house, just in case. I wish they'd all get tired and go home. So do I. <laughs> What's so funny? I was just thinking they could uh, go to Kelso. <laughs> you like that idea, Sheriff? I could write a note. Dear loggers, I'm in Kelso hiding in one of the red light houses. You'll have to look in all of them. Love, Robert Day. How can you see humor in this? You always this serious? This is a serious situation. It's the best time to joke. No, let's finish the questions. I need to get a few more details cleared up. You sure know how to take the fun out in the evening. Loggers told me that when they saw you bring your gun to camp, they could tell by the look in your eyes that you intended to shoot Clint. Well, I can't help what they think. But they're wrong. Why were you angry? Shouting? No. Just wanted to find out what happened to my boy. Your account varies from Davies at that point of the actual shooting. You said they were standing quietly a few yards away, but you say they pounced and tried to take your gun away. That's right. How did Clint get shot through the right side? I don't know. Was Clint turning, maybe starting to run? I'd never shoot a man who was running away. Robert picks up a straw broom, holds it to his left hand, with the handle pointing down. I held the gun like this. In your offhand. Right. I carry it that way. Show I ain't intended to shoot. Was your right hand loose? I've noticed you like to wave it about when you talk. No, do I? Now I'm going to be thinking about my hands all the time. When I walked into the camp, I was holding it in one hand, but when I'm standing still, I usually hold the barrel like this. Robert's right hand grasps the opposite end of the broom, holding it around hip level, perpendicular to his body. Now, when you stopped and talked with the Beebs, how far apart were you? Always part at first. Clint was doing most of the talking. Hotter he got, closer he got. Ben walks closer to Robert. Did he get this close? Closer. Closer. Hold it. They are face to face. The reenactment of the shooting is in slow motion as the men talk it through. How did Clint pull on your gun? He grabbed the stock. Yanked hard. Ben reaches both hands towards Robert's gun. His movement causes the right side of his body to angle toward Robert. Like this? I was startled, but I held tight. I, I yanked back like this. That's when you must have pulled the trigger. Musta, but I fired without thinking. I never raised my gun to my shoulder, I swear. The bullet would have gone through his right side here, through his lungs. You believe me now, don't you? I believe it could have happened this way. It also could have happened the other way. I'll include both accounts in my report. That's good. The other day you said one word would have been enough to lay the whole thing to rest. What did you mean by that? I meant all Beeb had to do was say he was sorry. That's all? That's all. If he said I'm sorry, I'd have shaken his hand and gone home. No harm done. Angry noises outside, louder than before. A knock at the door, then the sound of it unlocking. Ben goes to the door. What's happening, Pony? Ben and Pony, who is not seen... Hold a murmured conversation through the door. Robert is at the window, becoming more and more agitated. Noises outside get louder and angrier. Sheriff, I think they're going to smash in the doors and windows. Ben oh. puts on his cowboy hat. Pony, stay here with Day and cover me. I'll talk to them. End of scene. Scene six. Setting. A few minutes later, the courthouse porch. At rise, shouts howling, jeering as Ben walks up the steps onto the porch. No matter what he feels inside, outwardly he appears calm, cool. Robert listens at the attic window. Everyone listen. Bill, Al, Hank, Zachariah, everyone, li listen, please, quiet. Noise decreases a little. You all know me. Listen, I have a deputy with a gun trained on you right now. Noises stop. You know that I'm a man of my word. If you remain peaceful... As long as you don't harm anyone or anything, you won't be arrested. You won't be harmed. That's a promise. A promise. I understand how you feel. We all knew Clint. Most of you worked with him. 
He was a good man who died tragically. You want a life for a life, but I follow the law. You've trusted me enough to elect me four times. Trust me to handle this. Trust the law to do its job. Day is not in this building. That's the truth. We've taken him elsewhere. Nobody's inside. Noises increase. You're welcome to see for yourselves. I'd like you to appoint a leader. Hank, are you volunteering? Is is Hank, is Hank acceptable to all of you? All right. Here's the key. Choose six men with cool heads. Take them inside with you and search. You don't need to destroy anything. Agreed? The rest of you, listen, I know you. Many of you are prominent men. Citizens look up to you. You're good people with kind and generous souls. That's why if you take a life in revenge, you'll have to live with that forever. It can crush you. It can eat you inside. You'll be locked up for the rest of your life in prison of your own making. Brief silence. I know you know I'm right. So please go home to your families. Hold them close and thank the good Lord that you didn't make a tragic mistake tonight. End of scene. Scene 7. Setting. June 2nd, 1892. Ben's thoughts. At rise, Ben alone with his thoughts. After the mob left, I had to grab onto the porch rail to keep from falling over. Pony saw me, ran out, and got me to my horse. Told me to go home. He'd take care of Dave from here. Home. Susan. Even though it was late, she dished up a hot supper. The children seemed to sense I needed music. Charlie got out his fiddle, Annie played the piano, and Frankie and Johnny sang all my favorite songs. After a while, Susan and I sat on the porch and listened to the dark. Then she asked me if the plan worked. Speaking to the mob hadn't been part of the plan. I, I pulled her close and stroked her hair. She said, Darling, don't be keeping things for me now. I said, They work perfectly. They came then, she said. They came. Did they bring a rope? She asked. They did. I said, But they went home. Day is safe. And she said, You're making a habit of saving his life. And she started telling me one of her stories. She told me a tale about a noble king who was tested by an evil fairy. First, he was shown two bottles, one bright and shining, the other covered with cobwebs and dirt. The goblin said if the king chose the right bottle, he would spare the life of a prisoner in his dungeon. He chose the bottle with the cobwebs. The fairy screamed in anger, because that was the right bottle. Then he took him to two cauldrons. Both held stew, but one stew was bubbling hot over a fire. The other was cold. The king chose the cold stew, and again the fairy screamed. The fairy tested the man the third time. He placed him in a room with many doors. The man heard a voice crying out, But which door? The man had a gold ring, and he touched it to the doors. And when he touched the right door, it flew open, and there he found his faithful servant nearly dead. I said, Does that mean I'll be saving day a third time? She said, It's only a tale, love, only a tale. End of scene. Scene 8. Setting. November 2nd and 6th, 1891. Robert's cell, Commissioner's Meeting Room. At rise, Robert is writing in his cell. November 2nd, 1891. Dearest Lizzie, I feel real good. Folks have been coming to see me in jail, and I tell them all that I was defending my family, and they say, well, if you were defending your family, it's not murder, and I said, that's right. Some do not agree with me. Old man Imus at the Kalama Bulletin don't like me, but the reporter from the Kelso Courier likes me, and she don't like old man Imus. I ain't used to girl reporters, but she says girls write as good as men. The sheriff is hard to figure out. He don't talk much. He ain't mean, but he ain't trying to be too friendly with me either. But it don't matter, because as soon as I get out, we'll move far, far away and make a fresh start. Anywhere you like, you pick out a place you'd like to live, and I'll take you there. That's a promise. Same day, Ben in the commissioner's meeting room, giving a report. Sheriff's report, November 2nd, 1891. Commissioners, thank you for coming today. I requested this special meeting because I'm greatly concerned about the very real danger of a lynching in this county. We've been lucky so far. There's been talk, but cooler heads have prevailed. However, now that we know our friends and neighbors are willing to consider mob violence, we must do everything we can to prevent it. Our current jail won't stand up to a mob. Today you will hear from a representative of the Pauley Jail Company. He's offered several sizes of cells, the most secure being an 8x10 single cell for $2,000. He assures me that if you buy a cell, 
He could have it made and delivered by early February. To keep Day safe in the meantime, I'm requesting the county purchase and install bars on all the windows. November 6th. Dear Lizzie, we were in court this morning and I pleaded not guilty. That fool prosecutor is charging me with first-degree murder, but don't you fret. I've hired a lawyer, Myron Billings, or as he likes to style himself, Colonel Billings. He's a New Yorker, wears fancy clothes, and talks all lofty-like. Sure loves to boast. He was a big-shot lawyer in Iowa and a sharpshooter in the war. He even guarded Abraham Lincoln at General Lee's surrender. He said he saw Lincoln at Richmond holding little Tad's hand. You know me, I could not resist. I said, that's almost as interesting as when I won General Lee's horse, Traveler, in a poker game. When I saw the old man's sorrowful face, I told him, you go ahead and keep that horse of yours, General. Mine's better anyways. Billin said, fancy that. He can't even tell when I'm pulling his leg. He thinks Beale, the prosecutor, has a good case against me, which is hogwash. He's trying to talk me into pleading guilty to second-degree murder manslaughter or something. He says a little time in prison is better than the rope. I don't care what Billings says. I won't do it. It would be a lie to say I'm guilty of any kind of murder when I'm not. Defending myself and my family is my right, not a crime. I'm going to fight this. You have to sell some cattle to pay his bill, but it will be worth it. Don't lose hope, darling. I'll come home directly. Your loving husband, Robert. P.S. When I got back from court, I found my room had been redecorated. Now, instead of a wooden door, I'm looking at a set of iron bars. Sheriff says there'll be brand new cell come February, but Lord willing, I'll be home long before then. End of scene. Scene 9, setting, June 2nd, 1892, and December 7th through 11th, 1891. Ben's thoughts, Ben's office, and the courtroom. At rise, Ben is alone. Judge Bloomfield set jury selection for Monday, December 7th. Day turned down the plea deal. He refused to admit he was guilty of anything. He saw his crime as self-defense plain and simple. The prosecution was handled by Calamus City Attorney John Beale and Powerhouse District Attorney John Caples of Portland. December 7th, Ben's office. Robert and Ben are waiting for court. How soon before we go into court? The judge and attorneys are going over legal details. They'll send word when they're ready for me to escort you in. Can't wait to get this over with. I am an innocent man. I should be home. Why don't you talk? I bet you think I'm guilty. Like them people been writing me letters, saying they can't wait till I hang. Like them newspaper folks who called me Demon Day and Cold-Blooded Killer. My opinion doesn't matter. I gave the court my report. It's up to the lawyers now. I know I'm right. I'm going to win. I'm going home with my head held high. Ben pours two cups of coffee, hands Robert one. What do you think? I said my opinion doesn't matter. To me it does. Drink your coffee. The whole thing's a waste of time and you know it. What are you grinning about? Our criminal justice system has flaws, but it's better than the alternative. You mean it's better than lynching? That's right. Them lynchers are going to be surprised when I win this case. There ain't no jury in the world going to hang a man for keeping his wife and family safe from a man that threatened him. I ain't sorry he's dead. June 2nd, 1892, Ben's Thoughts. The prosecution brought in the finest lawyer in Portland, Judge Caples, and he and Beale built a powerful case. Loggers testified that Beebe and Day didn't get along and that they saw Day come into camp with a rifle and then follow Beebe and his young cousin David. David Beebe was the state's primary witness. Clinton Beebe's family and friends filled the seats and lined the walls as they listened to the boy tell the same gripping story he told the coroner's inquest. The weeping got so intense, the judge had to call a recess. I think the lawyers on both sides expected Day to take the plea bargain after the jury heard all that. They didn't realize how stubborn Day was. Only his wife came to support him. She sat behind him every day, pale and trembling, holding her chin up, never looking around, listening to every word. On December 10th, the defense put Day on the stand. Gentlemen of the jury, I will give you some idea how my trouble came on. Mr. Beebe was logging close to my farm. He threw some hay out. My cows had wandered into the Beebe camp. They had beat my cows and knocked the horns from one. My boy Dexter was working for them, told them they must quit. They knocked him down. Beeb told Dexter that if I said anything, they would beat me. I was away from home at the time. I was going to work for them next day, so I went down to see how the pay would be. 
I first asked them if they were going after some cattle, and they answered yes. I asked them if they had any fussing with my boy. They said, yes, we'd like to knock his damned head off, and yours too. They talked as if they were angry with me. I told them it was not right to threaten me because I hadn't done anything to them. They said they would do what they damn well pleased. Then they rushed on me, take away my gun, and I shot one of them. I thought they were going to beat me. I acted in defense of myself and my family. Otherwise, I would never have done it. On Friday, December 11th, the jury announced its verdict. Guilty of first-degree murder. End of scene. Scene 10. Setting, December 11th, 1891. Robert's cell. At rise, Robert is ranting about the verdict. I'm innocent. Innocent. Liars. Every one of them damn liars. Sheriff, get Billings for me. It's all wrong. All wrong. Ben unlocks the cell. Thank the Lord. Let me go. Let me go. If you don't stop yelling, I'll gag you. What's it to be? I got a right to yell. Ben takes a bandana out of his pocket, twists it. Robert holds up his hand. Wait. I'll be quiet. That's more like it. Now tell me what you're shouting about. They lied. Which witnesses? Davy, Dr. Stevens, Bill? All of them. Davy, he got him crying with his lying. All them loggers lied. They said I was hard to work with. That ain't true. And Bill, some friend he was, said I stormed into the camp with my gun hollering. I didn't storm. I walked fast. And I hollered because I didn't see Dex right away. Dexter! Bill made the jury think I was running around wild-eyed hollering for Clint's blood. Even my neighbors. I thought we was friendly. And they made me sound like a bad man. Get Billings for me. I changed my mind. What do you mean? I'm pleading guilty to manslaughter. Billings was right. I ain't guilty, and I don't want to hang. Didn't Billings tell you? He told me the state offered a plea deal. Before trial. It's too late now. No, I have to. Please, don't put me on the gallows. Listen, Billings has filed a motion for an arrest of judgment. Did he explain that to you? Something about the charges missing some words? Billings believes the words, a human being, legally, have to follow Beeb's name on the charging document. But they were omitted. And there were other words he believes needs to be included. If the judge accepts his motion next Thursday, then the jury's verdict will be set aside and you'll get another trial. And if you don't accept the motion? Then he'll pronounce sentence. Could he give me life in prison? No. First-degree murder is a hanging offense in Washington State. I'm sorry. End of scene. Scene 11. Setting. December 16th, 1891. The courtroom. At rise, Robert listens as Judge Bloomfield speaks. While the allegation is missing that the person instantly died from the mortal wound, as counsel says, it appears on the face of the information that, quote, he purposely and of his deliberate and premeditated malice did kill, end quote. The only other point urged is that the, quote, Thomas Clinton Beebe, end quote, should have been followed by the words, quote, a human being, end quote, or other equivalent words indicating that name as the name of a human being. The law should step in and exercise common sense as well as legal sense and know that the name indicates a person. I think it is true that the American courts have been guilty of a most unreasonable adherence to a mass of useless legal literature and criminal information and indictments in this country where they have surrounded a man charged with crime with every possible opportunity for mercy and justice. They adhere more than they ought, more than reason demands, more than justice demands to technicalities such as this. They thus thwart justice rather than advance it. And so, the court has nothing more to do than to deny the motion for a new trial and also the motion in arrest of judgment. Mr. Day, you may stand up. You are aware of the verdict of the jury in your case. Have you anything to say why sentence should not now be pronounced against you? I beg your pardon, Your Honor, and ask the mercy of the court. I did not intend any murder in my heart. It was not proved that I intended murder. I did not think of such a thing. One word would have settled the whole thing. If I had not been forced, I never would have thought of pushing back. I never was guilty of any crime before this, and I ask a lesser sentence than death. I don't feel that I deserve death. 
It never was proved that I intended to kill or murder anybody. Your Honor, I hope the day will come when you will find out some of these things that were said in court were not true and that I am not guilty. I hope the day will come when it will appear to all that I am not the man I have been represented to be. You have said, sir, that you submitted yourself to the court for sentence and use the word mercy. You crave mercy of the court. But in this case, the court has no discretion at all. This court could not exercise mercy, no matter how the individual who sits as judge might feel it. For there is but one punishment which the law has provided for your crime. I need hardly say that this is a severe task for any man to perform, and particularly for one who feels as acutely and sensitively as I do for the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God. For your crime of murder in the first degree, the law states that you shall suffer death. Upon that, then it is the judgment of the court that you be taken from this place by the sheriff of this county and safely and securely kept within the county jail until such time that you will be set for your execution. At that time, you are to be taken from the county jail by said sheriff to some place to be by said sheriff provided, and that you then and there shall be hanged by the neck until you are dead. And may God have mercy on your soul. That is all, sir. End of scene. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed part one of The Heart of Courage by Leslie Slate. Be sure to subscribe and tune in next week for part two. Play for Keeps podcast is produced by Ashland New Plays Festival and Play for Keeps. This podcast was produced by Andy Herndon. Art direction by Cara Quinn Lewis. Play for Keeps is directed by Jim Pagliasotti. Written content is edited by Carol Florian. Special thanks to Kyle Hayden, Jackie Apodaca, and Beth Kander. This is your host, Mary Claire Erdenast. Please visit us online at playforkeeps.org. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. Help us spread the word. Follow, like, share, and repeat. See you next time at Play for Keeps podcast. Books are meant to be read. Plays are meant to be said. <laughs>